0: Well, 27 years ago, in 1997, VH1 released a TV show that was immensely popular. In fact, it was so popular that it became one of VH1's longest-running TV shows. And the TV show I'm talking about this morning, the TV show that I'm referring to, is none other than Behind the Music. How many of you are familiar with Behind the Music or have maybe seen an episode or two or maybe more of Behind the Music? Well, what the show sought to do, uh, the show sought to profile various musical artists and groups documenting not just their success, not just their rise to fame, but also challenges and setbacks that they faced over the course of their careers. And Behind the music, success was simply phenomenal. Uh, in fact, the show was on the air for 16 seasons and produced well over 250 episodes with the last episode airing back in 2014. So it began in 1997 and then went to 2014. And then what happened three years ago in 2021 is Behind the Music received a reboot on Paramount+. Plus. Maybe some of you have a Paramount Plus subscription where new episodes continue to air. But what accounts for the enduring appeal of Behind the Music? Why does this TV show tend to resonate with us so much? Well, folks, I think it lies in our innate desire to feel personally connected to the people behind the music that we love. You know what I'm talking about? We don't want to simply see these artists as faraway celebrities or as wealthy individuals. No, we want to see them as everyday, ordinary people like us, don't we? People who mess up. Anybody here mess up? People who make mistakes people who face challenges, people who deal with family problems. And that's where the show's allure lies. The show offers an intimate glimpse, an up-close look into the lives of these artists, allowing us to perceive them as more than just their music. Well, taking our inspiration from the success of that TV show, and listen, if you've been with our church for the last few months, you'll probably realize that the last couple of sermon series seem to have stemmed from movies and TV shows we didn't plan for it like that. It just sort of happened, okay? But taking our inspiration from the success of that show, uh, this morning here at Asbury, we are launching into a brand new sermon series for Lent. Uh, Lent is that season that brings us into Easter. We're starting a new sermon series for Lent entitled Behind the Cross. Can you say this with me? Behind the Cross. In the sermon series, what we're going to do as a congregation is we're going to take a closer look at some of the key figures of the Passion Narrative. Now, for those unfamiliar with the term, passion narrative refers to the accounts in the four gospels. And what are the four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What I'm saying is pretty serious, I guess. My microphone's still on? Okay, it is still on. I can hear it crackling a little bit. Are you sure? Okay. It doesn't feel like we're good, but maybe we are. Um, So Passion Narrative refers to the accounts, and by the way, to our sound team, if we're not good, just maybe give me a thumbs down. I want to make sure that our online congregation can also still hear. So online folks, let us know if you're still with us in the chat. Um, But Passion Narrative refers to the accounts in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, detailing the suffering and the death of Jesus. There were numerous events leading to Jesus' death on Good Friday. And these events involve various people. While some of us may have heard of these figures in the past, perhaps in previous sermons or Bible studies, what we tend to lack is a comprehensive, a robust understanding of their stories. And so similar to the approach of Behind the Music... What we're going to do is we're going to profile these individuals. Doesn't that sound like fun? We're going to profile these individuals. Uh, we're going to delve into their lives uh, with the information that we have from the Bible and historical sources as much as we're able to, uncovering the good, the bad, the ugly. And our aim in the sermon series is to better understand how their stories, the stories of these people, sheds light and illuminates the teachings of Holy Scripture. And the figure that we're going to start with this morning as we kick off this new sermon series is a gentleman by the name of Joseph Caiaphas. Joseph Caiaphas. You ever heard of Joseph Caiaphas? Better known as Caiaphas. But before we delve into Caiaphas' story, let's set the context. This is really important. When Jesus came among us 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered a world vastly different than the world that we occupy today. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Nevertheless, it's crucial that we keep this in mind. First, Jesus was born into ancient Judaism. Uh, Not Judaism as it's practiced today, but rather ancient Judaism, uh, a religion that dates all the way back to Abraham, the patriarch in the book of Genesis, a religion with a distinct set of customs and practices and beliefs. But then second, Jesus was born during a critical period of human history that all of us studied about in school, and that would be the Roman occupation of Israel. The Roman occupation of Israel. You can see this map up here on the screen. Rome had this massive empire back then, stretching all the way to Spain during Jesus' time, and then later into Great Britain, it was the most powerful empire in the world. It's represented here in the purple. And so if you were somebody who lived in this empire, you did whatever the empire said, no questions asked. Otherwise, you would be crushed. Uh, This is an imperfect analogy, but when I was a kid, uh, there was a cartoon that I would watch on Saturday mornings, do you all remember watching Saturday morning cartoons? Or maybe your kids watch Saturday morning cartoons. You would come out of bed, get a bowl of cereal, and just sit in front of the TV and watch cartoons. Well, the cartoon that I used to watch was called Recess. Recess. Now, the show revolved around six kids and all their adventures during recess. And so what would these kids do? Well, they would run around on the playground. They would have fun. They would play games. They would get into trouble but it was more than just games. On the playground during recess, these kids actually had their own mini society, complete with a governing system. And there was a sixth grader who sat at the very top of this governing system. And what did the kids call him? They called him King Bob. And so King Bob, here's a picture of King Bob, King Bob ruled the whole playground during recess from the top of the jungle gym. He was high up there so he could see everything going on and so everybody could see how important he was. He used an old beat-up chair as a throne. He wore a crown-shaped helmet and used a hockey stick as a royal scepter. And all the kids on the playground, from kindergartners all the way to sixth graders, all the kids on the playground had to do what King Bob said. If King Bob said jump, what did you do? You jumped. If King Bob said go, you went. You listened to King Bob. You did what King Bob said. Now, I realize that this is a cartoon analogy because that's how sophisticated my preaching is. (laughs) But that's not too far off from how the Roman Empire worked. And so if you were a Jewish person living in the Roman Empire... You were free to worship God. You were free to practice your faith, but always under the watchful gaze of Rome. And you do not challenge Rome. You do not go up against Rome, because what would happen to you? You would be crucified. (laughs) Crucifixion was an execution that was specifically reserved for political purposes criminals. The crucified person would set up, or not set up, but they would hang up on a hill for everybody to see as a reminder, this is what happens when you come up against Rome. And so, folks, into this world, this world shaped by ancient Judaism, dominated by the Roman Empire, we encounter Caiaphas. Now, we tend to remember Caiaphas As the quote-unquote villain, the bad guy of the passion narrative or the Holy Week story, the antagonist, he was the chief priest who presided over the religious trial that later resulted in Jesus' crucifixion. But what I want us to understand this morning, his story is a lot more complicated than simply being a villain. So let's talk about his story. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Caiaphas. He's just mentioned a few times in the Bible and in different historical sources. But one thing that we do know is that when he was a young man, he married into a very powerful family. He married into a very powerful family. In fact, his father-in-law, Annas, can you say Annas? His father-in-law, Annas, used to be the high priest. But then what happened, scholars suspect because Annas got too big for his britches, you ever heard that expression? Too much power, too much influence, that made Rome nervous. Rome removed Annas from that position of being the high priest, and then Caiaphas succeeded his father-in-law as the next high priest. This happened around the year 18 AD. But here's the deal. Even though Caiaphas was the official high priest in Israel, His father-in-law, Annas, still wielded considerable influence. I'm going to give just two examples of this. This is what Luke says in his gospel, uh, Luke chapter 3, just before Jesus, or actually right when Jesus begins his public ministry, this is what Luke tells us. He says it was now the 15th year, this is the year in which Jesus began his public ministry at the age of 30, it was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate, we'll talk more about him later in the series, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Huh. Now that's pretty odd because in Israel, there was only one high priest. And when Jesus started his public ministry, who was that? It was Caiaphas was not Annas. What's going on? Well, Luke, who's a historian, is saying between the lines, yes, Caiaphas was the official high priest, but Annas had such influence, he had such power, there was such loyalty that the people felt to him, who were probably upset that Rome had removed him, that Annas still acted as the high priest along with his son-in-law. You know what I'm talking about? To use an analogy, it's kind of like when a prominent pastor who's been at a church for decades retires, but then remains in the community... There might be a new pastor. There might be a new senior leader. Does the previous pastor who served for decades have influence? Absolutely, he or she does. Another example of Annas's ongoing influence can be seen in what happens following Jesus' arrest on Holy Thursday, the day before Good Friday. Uh, this is John's account in John 18, verses 12 and 13. So the soldiers their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they took him to who? Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Even before the religious leaders took Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest, they took him to Annas. Annas was a powerful man, the patriarch of a powerful family. In fact, in addition to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, five of Annas' sons, how many? Five of his sons went on to become high priest. In our context today, this family would be like the Kennedys. We've had a lot of Kennedys, right, serving in office. There were a lot of people in Annas' family who served as high priest. And so I can't help but wonder if when Caiaphas became high priest that he felt some pressure. It's not hard to imagine that. He felt as if he was in the shadow of his father-in-law. I mean, he had a lot to live up to. Now let's talk a bit about his job as high priest. What is a high priest? Well, we're not going to get into all the details, but as high priest, it was Caiaphas' job to lead the people of Israel in their worship of God and to also oversee the functions of the Jewish temple. Up here on the screen, uh, this is an artist's rendition of what the temple looked like 2,000 years ago. Now, remember, there were two temples. The first temple, which was built by Solomon uh, in, under his direction, that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians around 587 B.C., And then what happened after the Jewish people were uh, taken to Babylon and they came back uh, is they rebuilt the temple. And so this is the second temple that was around when Jesus was here. Now, this temple also was destroyed. Who destroyed this temple? The Romans did in A.D. 70, so about 40 years after Jesus. But when Jesus was engaged in his ministry, that's what the temple looked like. Caiaphas' job was to oversee the functions of the temple And it was also his job to ensure that the Jewish nation stayed in the good graces of Rome. Because what could happen in a moment's notice, and what did happen later on, is that Rome could destroy the temple and destroy the nation just like that. And this is why Caiaphas, in large part, didn't like Jesus. He perceived Jesus as a threat. I mean, come on, Jesus was popular, wasn't he? He was charismatic. People listened to him. He fed the multitudes. He cast out demons. And on top of all this, what was the main theme of Jesus' preaching? What was the topic that Jesus talked about more than any other topic? Three words. Kingdom of God. Or sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. Now, to the religious establishment, Talk of another kingdom sounds like what? A potential uprising or insurrection against the empire, and that simply cannot happen. And so when we read the Gospels, we find Jesus in conflict and tension with the religious leaders until, folks, finally it got to the point that Caiaphas was so fed up with Jesus that he became determined to see Jesus dead. One of the other texts I want to focus on this morning with you is found in John chapter 11. Uh, this is what happens when Jesus performs one of his most controversial miracles, one of his most controversial miracles, and that would be the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Remember, Jesus finds out that Lazarus has passed away, and he goes, and he's with Lazarus' family, but then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Well, this is what happens after that miracle. Then the leading priests and Pharisees call the high council together. The high council was the Sanhedrin. That was basically the Jewish Supreme Court of that day. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man, referring to Jesus, certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Let's read this next sentence together. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. That's the fear. The Roman army will destroy our temple and nation. Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own. As high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation and not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world." And so after the raising of Lazarus, the religious leaders are absolutely petrified, believing that if Jesus continues to perform miracles like this, I mean, come on, raising a dead man? That doesn't happen. If he performs miracles like this, well, he's going to attract a bigger following, and Rome is going to notice, and Rome is going to feel threatened, and Rome is going to come, and they're going to destroy our nation. And that's when Caiaphas is led to make this statement. He says, y'all don't even know what you're talking about. Don't you even realize it's better for one man to die than for the entire nation to be destroyed? Now what's intriguing, Caiaphas doesn't realize this, but what he's actually doing in the moment, what's he doing? He's prophesying. In other words, he's speaking on behalf of God into the future. Because folks, this is exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to die. And he's not just going to die for the Jewish nation, he's going to die for what? For the entire world as it says in john 3 16 our choir reminded us of this truth so powerfully and beautifully as they were singing for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son jesus is going to die so that all humans jew and gentile alike might be drawn to god pretty remarkable isn't it and so the story of caiaphas teaches us something very important God can work through anyone. God can work through anyone, even if they don't realize it, even if they're actively opposed to God. Remember, this is the same God who, in the book of Genesis, used Joseph's brothers to get Joseph to Egypt, even though Joseph's brothers' hearts were full of evil when they sold their brother to slavery. This is the same God who used Pharaoh, who refused to let the people of God go from slavery to demonstrate his power to the entire world. This is the same God who used the selfish decree of an emperor, Caesar Augustus, to ensure that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem where the Messiah was supposed to be born. This is the same God who in the book of Acts took a persecuted church and caused it to grow and thrive and flourish. This same God, Almighty God, spoke through Caiaphas. And not only did he speak through Caiaphas, but he used Caiaphas and the story of salvation. Because the trial that Caiaphas presided over that resulted in Jesus' death, it also resulted in our salvation. I like the analogy that Philip Yancey, uh, Philip Yancey, he's a wonderful spiritual writer, I like the analogy that Philip Yancey draws in this article that he wrote. He likens God to a grand chess master. A grand chess master. Do we have any chess players? Okay, like two or three of you out of a whole congregation? When you're playing a game of chess and you're up against somebody good, not somebody like me who doesn't know what they're doing, but if you're up against somebody really good who's a master at the game, you are free to move your pieces anywhere you want to on the board, Right? I mean, you can move your bishop over here, you can move your queen over here when it's your turn, but it really doesn't matter where you move your piece. The chess master who knows what they're doing, they're going to take your move, and they're going to use it to their advantage so that they might win the game. And if you're still not sure what I'm talking about, I want you to take a look at this clip. If you do that, I'll win In five moves. <laughs> I'll win in one move. Oh no. Good game. <laughs> this clip, as funny as it is, it gives us a picture of how God works. God doesn't force us to do anything. God doesn't manipulate us. God doesn't control us. He honors our freedom, but he also uses our free choices, even when they're really bad, to accomplish his purposes. Caiaphas spoke without realizing that he was prophesying about the future. He was declaring something really profound about Jesus, and God also used Caiaphas in the story of salvation. He took Caiaphas' free actions and used them for the good. And so, folks, in that sense, Caiaphas' story teaches us and reminds us of God's ultimate sovereignty. God is king over everything. But his story also reveals something else that I want to talk about. His story reveals what can happen when we let fear and power control us. Caiaphas had reached the peak of his religious career when he became high priest. And there's no doubt that he was smart, that he was capable, that he was gifted. And I suspect that when he started his work as a priest, he began that work with a sincere call from God, a genuine desire to make a difference. But then what happened over time as he continued to advance? Climbed the ladder, so to speak. He started making compromises. He started getting too close to Rome. Now, these compromises at first, I suspect they were rather small, maybe seemingly insignificant. But then over time, they got bigger and bigger and bigger, more dramatic, more dramatic, more dramatic. until so finally, Caiaphas was so terrified by Jesus' popularity and the possibility that Rome could remove him just like they removed his father-in-law that he became determined to stop Jesus no matter the cost, even if it meant knowingly executing an innocent person. And so on late Thursday, after the Last Supper, Jesus and the eleven disciples were in the garden. There were eleven disciples at that point because Judas had already left to go find the religious authorities. Then Judas came with a band of soldiers. They arrested Jesus. This is what happens after the religious leaders arrest Jesus. This is Matthew's description. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas. This trial actually happened in Caiaphas' house. The high priest where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered inside the leading priests in the entire high council, again, this was called the Sanhedrin, were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. That's because uh, the testimony that they gave was not in agreement. And according to Jewish law, the law of Moses, at least two or three witnesses had to be in agreement if you were going to be convicted of a crime. So finally, two men came forward who declared, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, when Jesus said that, he wasn't talking about the actual temple. He was referring to his body. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy, why do we need other witnesses? You have heard all his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists and some slapped him. Caiaphas, the man appointed to oversee the functions of the temple to lead God's people in worship, Caiaphas arranged for Jesus' arrest. This sham trial, this joke of a trial. And by the way, the Sanhedrin never met during night. And also didn't meet during religious festivals like Passover, had false witnesses come forward to lie about Jesus, and then also had people hit Jesus and spit on him. It is deeply ironic that a person who represented God to the people orchestrated this injustice. How could this happen? Well, I don't think it's simply because Caiaphas was a monster, a villain, a demon. I mean, it's common for people nowadays to really demonize and vilify Caiaphas, but we got to remember, he was a person just like you and me. I think Caiaphas acted the way that he did because he was so afraid of losing power. Power is seductive, isn't it? And when we become entangled by power, possibility that we could lose it, well, sometimes we're tempted to abandon our integrity and to engage in activities that we never would have imagined. This happens to a lot of us. You ever heard of Chuck Colson? In 1969, Chuck Colson was kind of like Caiaphas in the sense that he had reached the peak of his career. He was only 38 years old, not even 40 years old, and he was an aide to the President of the United States of America. He was one of President Nixon's advisors. He was a part of President Nixon's inner circle, and was very smart, and capable, and gifted, and politically astute, but at the time, he lacked a moral compass as he even admitted later on. He believed that the means always justify the end, no matter how bad the means are. In fact, allegedly, he once said that he would run over his own grandmother if it meant protecting President Nixon. And so when there became a possibility that Richard Nixon might not win re-election and therefore Colson would lose his privileged position in the White House, he became involved in which scandal? The Watergate scandal, one of the worst political scandals of modern history. And so for his part in the Watergate scandal, he went to prison for seven months. Now, thankfully in prison, God intervened. He had an encounter with the living Jesus that changed him, made him into a new person. But up until that encounter with Jesus, he was kind of like Caiaphas, so afraid of losing power. Here's my question for you and for me. What are we doing with the power that's been entrusted to us? because all of us hold some level of power, whether it be in our homes, in our families, in our communities, and our places of work. Are we stewarding that power appropriately and responsibly with integrity? And if push came to shove, and there was a possibility that we could lose it, would we be okay with letting it go? Human beings are complicated, aren't they? Caiaphas was more than the summation of his actions. I want to be clear about that. But his actions do highlight two spiritual truths. God's sovereignty over history. God can work through anyone, even without realizing it, and even those who are opposed to God. And what can happen when we let fear and power control us? Folks, God does not want us to be driven by fear. God wants us to be led by love, and when we are led by love, we'll look more like the person of Jesus who because of his great love went to the cross and died for us all. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for using us to accomplish your purposes for your sovereignty, for your kingship, for your lordship, And thank you also for the reminder that you don't want us to be driven by fear or by a lust for power. You want us to be led by love. And so, God, help us in this task. Give us grace. Give us mercy. Continue to empower us so that we might be about the work to which you have called each of us in and in through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.